Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. There is not a place I would rather be on this side of eternity than right here with you this morning, reminding ourselves of these things of first importance. We're uh, taking a running head start at, at Easter Sunday by walking through these things that Paul talks about and reminds us of here in 1 Corinthians. Uh, you know, we get to remember the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ every week in the Lord's Supper. And I am so grateful for that rhythm. But if y'all are like me, and if you're honest, I think sometimes the routine gets to us. And maybe we slip a little in remembering and focusing on the magnitude of this event. So I think that it is good to have a time when we can stop and we can dig deeper into these things of first importance. And I'm already enjoying preparing these lessons and, and digesting them together, and I hope you are as well. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, so I'd like for you all to open your Bibles there. Last week we began this series by remembering the suffering of Jesus on the cross. We talked about how his suffering carried his obedience to the fullness of perfection that was required to cover our sins. Suffering that allowed him to empathize with us and connect with us in a way that no one else has ever been able to connect. There was no miracle that held him on the cross. It was only his obedience. And in his suffering, he reached the far limits of human experiences. And because of that, he can connect with us in everything. But today we're going to see a suffering come to an end. And we're going to look at his death. Um, and here we kind of arrive at the, the first bullet point of the gospel story that Paul shares with us in 1 Corinthians. The divine Son of God crucified and died on a tree. Let's begin by reading it together. Matthew 27, verses 45 through 54. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, a curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. For today's purposes... I would like for us all to pull up a seat at the side of the cross. Pull up a, pull up a rock and, and, and take a seat beside the bystanders who were watching this event. And I would like for us, instead of this being a, 
a fairy tale or a, maybe I should, not a fairy tale, I should say a story that we already know the ending to. I, I would like to watch it with fresh eyes and, and see it unfold in front of us. So, so let's do that today. Let's pull up a seat and see what we see. The first thing that you're going to notice is the darkness. Matthew 27, 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. How many of you have ever been sitting at home, maybe in your office, and you look out the window, and it's in the middle of the day, and it's been sunny, and then all of a sudden, the storm clouds show up, and the skies darken, and there's just that change in mood. How does that make you feel? Have you ever, have you ever I mean, it's not necessarily a, a bad feeling, but we all have experienced that odd, off feeling when the sky gets dark in the middle of the day. You know, I can imagine um, seeing that under normal circumstances, but what would it be like if that happened in the moment when you were watching something like a crucifixion unfold? In fact, I would push you a little further. You're sitting here off to the side watching this crucifixion unfold, um, covered with this three hours of unseasonable darkness, knowing that the man who was being crucified just hours prior to his crucifixion had claimed to be God's son. I simply can't imagine how uncomfortable it would have been for all of the Jews watching things take place for these three hours. And I wonder what we would be thinking as well. Some of our uncomfortableness could be mitigated if we could explain this away with some sort of natural phenomenon. You know, I've read of some people saying, well, maybe, the, maybe a sandstorm blew in. That was something that could occasionally happen then. But the truth is, as I look through the text, I see no indication whatsoever of any type of storm. Others have claimed, well, maybe it was a solar eclipse, but if you know anything about how astronomy works and the timing of the Passover during a full moon, that simply is not physically possible to have happened. As we look at this, it's undoubtedly supernatural. God is working and no one could deny it. So why did God deliver darkness in this moment? Was it simply to make everyone uncomfortable? Was it simply to make us squirm on this rock that we're sitting on watching this event unfold? Well, as we look through Scripture, we see that often darkness accompanied God's judgment. So we back up to Exodus chapter 10 and we see the ninth plague. What do we find? Three days of darkness. We look in Amos and he prophesies about darkness being associated with mourning and the wearing of sackcloth and famine. I'll read the last two verses of Isaiah 13, 1 through 11. It says, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. There's something ominous about darkness in the middle of the day. And, and I think in most of the cases throughout the Old Testament, we see that it pointed towards God, God's wrath, God's judgment of some sort. In light of this, as we look at the situation, it could represent God's wrath on Israel for what they were doing in that moment, crucifying His Son on a cross. Or perhaps more fittingly, it represents His wrath towards sin the sin that was being laid on the shoulders of Jesus in this very moment. 
And as we move through the rest of these things that we see, I think the latter is most likely. So imagine you're sitting there off to the side. You're a little uncomfortable. You've seen this darkness show up. It makes you question things. It makes you wonder if maybe we've made a mistake by crucifying this man. What is it that's causing God to be unhappy? And then we read in verse 46, about the ninth hour, if you'll recall when the light returned, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, <clears throat> With a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the light returns, Jesus' voice rings out across the city. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What sort of impact would that have as you watched? Would you find yourself in the hurry and give him a drink camp? Or would you find yourself in the let's wait and see if Elijah will save him camp? Because that's the way the two bystanders responded. We read, and oftentimes I think we're told that they were making fun of him in this moment, and perhaps that, the, that is the case. I'm, I'm not so sure. I certainly think that if I was sitting there watching these, unfold, these events unfold, I would have found myself quite nervous. A lot of these bystanders were not um, Jewish believers, so they were unfamiliar with Jewish traditions. And I can imagine they weren't quite sure what to do with this supernatural darkness or the light returning as Jesus made this cry. Remember, the women and those who knew him seemed to be off on the edges at a distance. So what does this cry mean? It's a direct quote from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm of lament written by David, and it comes from the very first verse and some have said that he quotes this first verse of Psalm 22 to point us to the rest of the psalm, to call attention to it. And that used to be what I thought. Perhaps that's true. I certainly think that, that Jesus, in the moment of suffering, went to the thing that he knew the best. And that was certainly God's word. And so as these cries rang out from Jesus' mouth, without a doubt, he was familiar with the entirety of the psalm. Without a doubt, he was familiar with where that psalm would lead and the way that it would lead to ultimate trust in God and his provisions to take care. But in this moment, he chose these words specifically. And I think had he meant us to land on the further words, he would have said those words. These are the words he said in the moment, and I believe it's because these were the words that described his situation in the most genuine sense. This is what he felt in the moment because this is what was happening in the moment. He knew the end of the story, yes. But right now, in front of our eyes, God has turned his back on his son. God has forsaken him. Perhaps that's what the darkness had pointed to. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 reads, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged, on a tree. In this moment, Jesus experienced separation from God. Jesus experienced separation from God so that none of us would ever have to. He experienced what hell would be like so we wouldn't experience it. He saw forsakenness by God firsthand so that we would never have to see it and feel it this way. Spiritual realities that are happening here send shivers down my spine. God has darkened the sky with his impending judgment. And Jesus, 
Jesus, for the first time ever, has experienced separation from God. As God turns his back to his now sinful, dirty son, who used to be so perfect. Back to the text in verse 50. We read, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. So in the midst of absolute forsaken separation from God, Jesus dies. In the Luke account, he refers to God as his father. We read the John account where he, uh, where he um, says that it is finished. Um, the exact words aren't told us in Matthew. But the bottom line is this. What is noteworthy about the Matthew account is this. Jesus is the one that released his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. Jesus understood when the time was right. Jesus understood when his obedience has been perfected. Jesus knew when the forsakenness was complete. And in that moment, he chose to give up his spirit. John 10, 18, Jesus is speaking of his life and he says this, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. Which means even in his final moments, even up to this point when Jesus surrendered his spirit on the cross, I suppose had he wanted to, he could have laid his, taken his life up just as easy as he laid it down. But he didn't. He yielded his spirit. Now death, death is an odd thing. Externally, not a lot changes. But the essence of who someone is ceases to be there. Some of you have been with a loved one at the moment that life left, and it's certainly difficult for us to see someone's body knowing that their spirit is no longer there. Evokes a lot of questions. What's the experience going to be like? What does a spirit without a body do or look like? Is there any value to a body without a spirit? So many questions, and these same questions are compounded even more when you take Jesus, God's Son, and, and, and you try to wrap your mind around the reality of what it means for, for God in the flesh to die. And the truth is, I'm not exactly sure how it worked, but I know that it happened. And the events that follow help us understand why it was so important and what sort of an impact that it had on us. The first thing that we see in verse 51, the first result is the temple curtain was torn. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So what was this temple curtain that we talk about? There were two curtains. There was one that divided the the court of the Jews from the court of the Gentiles. There was also another curtain that separated the most holy place, the holy of holies, from the rest of the temple. And the term used here by Matthew most normally refers to that inside curtain, the curtain that that kept the people away from the place that God would manifest His presence. The place where no human save the high priest once a year was ever allowed to be. And that is the place that in the moment of Jesus' death was rendered exposed. I want to ask you a question. If you walked into a room with an infant on the floor eating chocolate chip cookies from a jar, and you knew that that jar came from the top shelf of the pantry, what would you think? Ah, you would think there was collusion. Someone absolutely had stepped in and helped this toddler get these cookies. There was intervention. The fabric didn't just tear. The fabric tore from the top to the bottom in a way that no human could have done. In this moment, God ripped the curtain that had separated him from humanity in this way. It was an immediate response to Jesus' death. And this was the moment when change occurred. 
Not in his suffering, that perfected him. Not in his forsakenness, that was the moment when God turned his back on him because he had shouldered our sin. But, but here in his death, at this moment, the final sacrifice had been completed. Remember what I said about Jesus' experiencing separation from God so that you wouldn't have to? Well, this had more than just eternal consequences. This was more than just something out in the future. This forever altered the fabric of how humanity would operate and interact with a holy God. And it rendered the temple obsolete. There's so many verses that demonstrate this reality well, but I think the one I want to tease out is Hebrews 10, 19-22. It lays it out beautifully. In Hebrews 10, 19-22, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Church, this is huge. I'm not sure that we can even imagine what a pre-Jesus world looked like. I mean, we are so used to this type of access to God, it's totally foreign to us to think that of having a relationship with God that was totally indirect, a relationship with God that had to be mediated with these constant cycles of blood sacrifices, a relationship with God that centered on a physical place, a relationship with God that required these, these human high priests with all of the problems that humans had to come and offer sacrifices on our behalf. We take so much for granted. You know, we see in the denominational world some attempts to put back in place some hierarchy between us and God. But the reality is this. In this moment, the Scripture teaches that the fabric of the way people were going to interact with God, the fabric of the universe was changed. Jesus makes it so that we can enter with confidence into the Holy of Holies so that you and me, whether we're a king or a peasant, can walk into the Holy of Holies and have this interaction with God. It changes the way that we worship. It makes possible what we've been doing today, the way that we've sung. It changes our personal lives. It changed your morning prayers and it changes the prayers that we have here together today. It has shifted our relationship with God from just being a people that serve under Him to being His sons and daughters that enter into the room with Him. Him. That's what happened in this moment. How can a sinful, broken, filthy, dirty people enter the holy holies and stand in front of a holy God? Because when Jesus died on the cross, our sins were atoned for in his death. Because Jesus took our sins and the guilt that was loaded on him as the darkness entered and as God forsook him. And he died on the cross and he took our sins to the grave with him. And this was the moment when everything changed. When the gavel was struck, when the price was paid, and when the transfer was made. Our connection with Jesus is in his suffering. Our hope is in his resurrection. But forgiveness, forgiveness for our sins happened in his death. Forgiveness that restores our relationship and makes it possible for God to let us into the holy of holies while being righteous and holy and good and just. If you pass through Jesus, you pass through the curtain and have access to God. <clears throat> now other things happened. We see in verse 51 that the earth shook and the rocks were split. 
So you're sitting here off to the side and, and, and the rock falls out from underneath you because there's a, a massive earthquake. I think that it's fitting that all of creation would tremble at the, the changes that this spiritual reality was going to render to the physical world. At the death of Christ, the, the fabric of the universe changed. Something changed and the earth trembled when it saw it. And so I asked myself, what was it that changed? And, and I think at the bottom line is this, death. The humanity's relationship with death was changed. Death is crushed on the cross. Verses 52 and 53, we read that the tombs were open. And many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. In Jesus' death, humanity's relationship with death was forever altered. Now, the timeline in Matthew is a little unclear. We're not told about this exact thing happening in the other Gospels. You wonder, did they raise in this moment and then wait to come out of the tombs and show themselves? Or did both of these things happen after the resurrection? The, the latter one would make the most sense to me, but it strains the reading just a little bit. People debate this. I don't think it really matters that much. The important thing is this. Um, we don't know anything about who the people were. We don't know anything about their duration of their second stay. We simply know that God caused this miracle to occur. Jesus' death opened their tombs. Their physical bodies were resurrected. They presented themselves to many witnesses. I still hold that our hope for eternal life is in the resurrection, but it's evident that Jesus' death changed humanity's relationship with death forevermore. His death crushes death. So I circle back to this rock that's been disheveled that we've set on and watched these events unfold, and I ask you this. What are you thinking? I want to circle back and, and see what all that we've seen. Um, we wouldn't have known that the temple curtain was torn. We wouldn't have known about the raised saints yet. Word would travel quickly, so it was just around the corner. But in this moment, you would have seen the darkness. You would have heard the cry. You would, would have witnessed the earth shake and the rocks split. So what are you thinking? I can tell you what I would be thinking. This man was exactly who he said he was. The earth had just testified to the fact. In verse 54 we read, When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. I think were we watching, we would have had the same response. We would have been filled with awe. We would have saw that God made evident that it was His Son who had died. And so many thoughts would be running through our head. I mean, wow, why? What is happening? Now, I want to fast forward 2,000 years later to our seat right here, right now, and make this observation. We still stand at the foot of the cross. Through Matthew's account, we can think of the darkness and we hear the cry of separation from God and the division of the body from the Spirit and the ripping of the curtain and the splitting of the rocks and the resurrection of the saints. And my question is this, what other response is there for us to bring today other than to stand in awe of God? Even more so today because we understand even more of what was happening than he did or than they did. We understand that Jesus didn't just die. Jesus died for us. We understand that the call of forsakenness was the reality of what our sin did to him. We understand the temple curtain torn by God shows the forever changed relationship we have with God because of Christ. And we understand that in this moment, our relationship with death was forever altered. So as we wind down today, 
I don't want this to become an academic exercise. I think we need to pause and remind ourselves. This was for us. This was for me. This was for you. You know, Jesus really, in a sense, didn't die on the cross to save his followers. He obviously died on the cross to save his followers. But my point is this. He he suffered and died to save more than just them. Jesus died on the cross looking out with his sights on his enemies, on the people who were hurling insults and mocking him, the sinful, broken world around him. He died on the cross to fix those problems, the very people who crucified him, the people who sat by on rocks watching these things unfold and asking themselves questions, you and me. He did this for us, Romans 5, 6 through 8. We read it at the beginning. It reads, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Most of you are here this morning because you love Jesus and you believe in him and this is your time to celebrate God and encourage other Christians and recharge your soul for spiritual warfare that we face every day and we understand that the death of Jesus has made it possible for us to come together this morning as sinners and and have confidence that we've been forgiven to approach his throne with confidence to step into his throne room and experience his presence but maybe there are some who are not feeling that, who see the brokenness in the world and the brokenness within yourself. And you look out and you just wonder, how can, how can any of this be fixed? Well, Jesus was the Son of God. And He gave His life for the brokenness of sinners and for the brokenness of the world. And Jesus certainly understood that in no shape, form, or fashion could we put this mess back together. But he loved us enough to step in and do these things for us that we could not do for ourselves. In the middle of our sin, in the middle of our mess, in the middle of our brokenness, Jesus died on the cross to remove our guilt. Forsaken, forsaken by God so that we would not be. In the New Testament, when people realized this, they always did several things. They were pierced to the heart. And they committed to change. They desired a better way. We call it repentance. They were baptized into the name of Jesus and they became a part of his church, moving forward with a community of believers. And so I want to tell you this, if you are ready to make a change, we are ready to baptize you and walk with you and support you. I hope that you will not put it off. If you need prayers of support, if you would like to study, or if you have any other need, we invite you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.